Welcome to a special episode of The Goods, a film podcast. I suppose to some extent every episode of The Goods is a special episode, but tonight is extra special for a few reasons. First of all, it's episode 111, our 111th episode of the podcast. Make a wish. Uh, Second of all, we're going to be talking about two movies. Um, Third of all, Brian, you're on a different microphone. Yes, sorry listeners if I sound inferior to my normal audio quality, but I am down in Orlando and I took my laptop with me, but I didn't take my podcast mic, so I'm onboarding it today. And you're in Orlando because your brother works at Disney, right? Yeah, so I'm down here hanging out. We have both of our birthdays in January, so it's kind of a meetup on account of that. And you'll hear more about that before the month is out. Now, in Virginia, the the high was 29 degrees. What's the temperature like down in Orlando? It was 75 degrees today, Dan. I can see why people move to Florida. <laughs> Old people who don't want to deal with the cold. Or young people who don't want to deal with the cold, to be honest. But Right. Anyways, I'm burying the lead here because the, the fourth and biggest reason that this is a very special episode is because we have a guest. And that guest is our old pal, Gargus. Gargus, are you out there in the digital ether somewhere? This is the way. Step inside. Yep. Here I am. Welcome back. This is your third appearance on the pod. Yep. Last time I was here, I specifically said that I would be coming back on purpose with specific intent to hurt you both. <laughs> Cause real damage. And I think I've made good on that promise. Joke's on you. I'm into that shit. (laughs) (laughs) So you have selected two films for us to watch. We can talk about why these two might come as a package as we as we go through them. Those two films are After Last Season, a film from 2009 and Final Flesh. A film from two, also from 2009. So here we have two films from the same year. Each put us in some ways, I would say, on the extremity of cinema. And I think we're going we're gonna to talk through them and we're going to have some opinions here. Yes, I'm actually glad that you brought these to my attention. I hadn't heard of either of these films. I struggled for a while to find them. Although listeners know that they are both available on archive.org. But I felt something of a connection because I have long considered myself a fan of so bad it's good movies or just very, very low quality films. Uh, I was the one who brought Max Magician to the table. But long before the podcast, I was showing people Troll 2 and The Room And once you start doing that, people recommend things like Birdemic. Uh, But these two are really something special. It's like a whole other level. (laughs) It's like we've finally hit bedrock, perhaps. It's like that meme, the galaxy brain meme. We're down at that bottom level, I think. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, Birdemic is the worst movie you can get from someone who still has a vague idea how cinema should work. These two are more like some... I won't exactly say alien perspective, but they are very, very far removed from anything you'd call conventional. So, two movies, 2009, after last season, Final Flesh. I think we decided the order we're going to talk about them here is after last season first, and then we'll talk about the strange thing that is Final Flesh second. Yes, the strange, very not safe for work thing that is Final Flesh. That's right. Yeah, we might be earning our explicit tag this episode. <laughs> we, got, we got the uh, for adult audiences only tag, which I heard better safe than sorry on checking that box. So I was like, I'll just go ahead and check it so I can draw drop the, the F-bomb. And yeah, and there's worse than that in these in at least the second one we're going to talk about. But anyways, after last season, so. Gargus, I guess before we just dive into what the movies are, just give us give us a high level view. What? Why did you pick these movies? You said to destroy the podcast, and perhaps you will achieve that goal. But what what inspired you to recommend these two films as as what we're going to watch here? Well, I first these two films first came to my attention the same way that my two previous movies did. For those who don't know, those were uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and Nekozielenka. Both of those came to my attention around 2015 when I discovered the website 366 Weird Movies, which was a site dedicated to running through a whole bunch of strange movies to find the weirdest movies of all time. One for every day of the year, the next one for the leap year. Those two stood out to me because I believe they both earned the site's beware tag, which they tend to give out when something is going to hurt to watch or be so strange that it's going to leave you with psychic damage. <laughs> and it has been about seven years since I both watched, since I watched both of them. And they were both very unique experiences. After last season, because even though I had my ability to watch it however I liked, I still wound up sitting there not pausing it, not putting my attention to anything else, simply because it was so numbing that it was difficult to look away or comprehend, like, just what the hell was happening. Final Flesh, I admit, when I watched it, it was on a bit of a gray market site. This was before it was up on uh, archive.org. And I could not pause the player without crashing the player and also my browser so if i wanted to watch the movie i just had to let it play out in all 70 minutes start to back with no stopping no ability to wrench myself away if i didn't want to miss something and with you two having seen it you can understand why that was a bit of a experience absolutely yeah so from exploring the recommendations on that site and just thinking to myself, well, you know, they said that my, the stuff that I bring on is really weird. And I promised I'd bring on something that's so weird that it's going to ratchet things up to a level that's hard to top. And I spent quite some time weighing between these two movies before thinking to myself, well, there might not be enough to discuss for both of them. Let's just do for both of them on their own. Let's just do both at once. Por que no las dos? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a good double feature. Yeah. 
some some interesting compares and contrasts here. Plus some unintentional linkage that I'll bring up as we go along. Okay, interesting. Yeah, like you can link these movies to one degree of uh, Kevin Bacon, technically. Which one was Kevin Bacon in? Brian, I assume you're familiar with the degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, it's you, the cast members, how far away they are in terms of numbers of movies from having appeared with somebody who appeared with Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah. I, I just meant it as like the generalized purpose of that game where it's not like specifically Kevin Bacon. It's just for anyone. Oh, OK. I just like saying the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, even though Kevin Bacon isn't involved because the six degrees of seven bacon rolls off the tongue well. So like rather than connected to Kevin Bacon. Like these movies can be technically directly connected to each other. I see. I see. Well, I'd like to hear about that when we get to it, but I suppose we should dive into it and we'll, we'll talk about after last season first. So uh, this is a independent film. Both of these are very independent in the sense that they are very far outside of mainstream language of cinema. And I don't think either of them have any their sights on uh, profitability. <laughs> the creator of this film, the director and writer is a enigmatic director named Mark Region. So Mark Region is, well, I have, I'll, we'll talk about Mark Region more because I, I went down a, a small Mark Region rabbit hole this afternoon in preparation for this episode, but. You entered the Mark Region. <laughs> yeah. So this one came to the internet's attention, I learned, in 2009 before it released to theaters. And this one actually did release to theaters. We'll get to that. But a trailer went up on, it was like Apple's film trailer service. And people watched the trailer and said, that doesn't look like a real movie that a real human being would make. It's got to be some sort of marketing gimmick. And the theory was that maybe it was Spike Jones's Where the Wild Things Are that was due to come out in about a year. And like, I don't, I guess... I'm not sure why that movie specifically, but Spike Jones, something of a, an experimental boundary pushing filmmaker, maybe he would go like real guerrilla warfare on, on the marketing and make this, this weird trailer and who knows, even maybe a weird movie out of it. Um, that turned out not to be true. Mark Regan's just a weird dude and he just made a, a bad movie. So eventually the movie was released it only went to four theaters and there was a very small DVD release. Those DVDs are actually kind of collector's items now. The last one that went up on Amazon sold for $200. So I guess, you know, they're floating around there every now and then. But this is ostensibly a like science fiction thriller murder mystery movie, maybe. Yeah, I wrote science fiction on our movie grid. I guess there's technically a plot to this movie. Well, I was going to say with regards to the to why that specifically, that conspiracy theory that it may be viral marketing for where the wild things are gained a little bit of steam because for whatever reason, Entertainment Weekly picked up the story and ran an article on it wondering whether or not it really was getting in contact with cast members and people who have been hyping up the movie and like the, you know, obscure local movie markets. And the origin that they give for the conspiracy is that 
one where the wild things are had been massively delayed like there had been a teaser trailer for it that released all the way back in 2000 and then the project completely fell apart and jones spent the next decade trying to get it re back together but when it finally was in the stage of marketing itself someone noticed on the imdb page that mark ruffalo's character hadn't been given a name yet so they posited from all i can tell completely baselessly that his character in the movie was going to be a filmmaker named mark region and after last season was going to be a movie within the movie with the trailer being like a trailer for the movie in the movie where the wild things are interesting okay that's not true though that would have been a fun story and that probably would have been maybe more interesting oh, it's not true whatsoever but it, it was true sounding enough to get someone from entertainment weekly to write an article on it i feel like somebody just read mark ruffalo's name and were like mark ruffalo mark region and that was the extent of the thought they put into it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that gave the movie a much higher profile than it would have otherwise had. So when you introduced this movie, Gargus, you said that you couldn't look away. You described a numbing effect. For me, I couldn't keep my eyes on it. I Like, it was the opposite almost. It was like... <laughs> what was on the screen was incapable of sticking to my brain. It was like immediately rolling off of it. Like my, my eyes were tricky telling my brain the thing that, you know how there's like, they say the brain is good at like weeding out information that you don't need and piecing together the information you do need and like noticing the things that matter. My eyes were telling my brain that this information in front of me was the information that did not matter. And literally anything else that was happening around me was more important. So it was hard for it to stick to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I was in the same place as you, Dan, that I like couldn't look at it past a certain point. And uh, Tim Brayton of Alternate Ending has a pretty in-depth review of this movie. And I don't know if it was him or somebody on Letterboxd or something, but they were saying that they like started to hear the blood pumping like in their head. <laughs> Just like they were, they like as if they were sitting in a silent room. They just started becoming aware of sensations you would normally tune out. See, for me, it was. I wound up at that point where I should have, but it was just so completely bad. Like for years and years afterwards, I've described this movie to friends as one of the rare examples of a movie that somehow manages to do absolutely everything wrong. Yeah, like it, it is possible for a movie to do everything technically wrong and still be like, you know, entertaining for, oh, they messed this up. Ha <laughs> ha. But that, that's not after last season. After last season is such a vortex of lacking ability and quality that even the ability to really laugh at it sort of goes away. It can really mostly just be regarded rather than enjoyed. Right. It's like almost performance art, but unintentional performance art. It's like, uh, it's like when they pour soup on a painting. This is like pouring soup on cinema itself.
<laughs> yeah, but even then I'd say that like, you know, you know, that one banana piece that everybody brings up. That's at least trying to communicate a point about like the art market. Whether or not it's making a good point and making it well is up to the viewer, but you can discern the idea without outside help. Oh, you mean the banana in the art gallery? I was trying to think, wait a minute, there was a banana in this movie? I missed that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, if there was, it'd be kind of hard to discern from everything else, but no, like the one that they duct tape to the wall. And it's got like the very specific instructions that it has to be on this type of wall with this duct tape and with this banana at this angle, this high up. And it's making a point like, oh, anyone can do this. What you're really paying for is the instructions to hang a banana this way. And that's what the art gallery, that's what the art market is. You can discern a point from looking at it. After last season, maybe not so much on that one. Oh, yeah, I, I've discerned maybe kind of sort of possibly a point from it after having sat on it for so long and then rewatched and then read some things about it but probably best to just talk about the movie first to get across just why we're having this reaction yeah let, let's say what this movie actually is so the plot to the extent that i was able to like neurologically process it is that there are these two students matthew and sarah who are studying some sort of brain science and it seems like the invention that they're working on is some sort of groundbreaking microchip that will allow you to view each other's thoughts. But the, the few sentences that I just said to describe this plot don't convey what watching this movie is like, because those are not things that happen in a way that one would expect things in a movie to happen. Like if I say a thing happens in a movie in your brain, you're like, all right, I know that when things happen in a movie, here is how things happen. But like, that is not what happens in this. This movie is just like a featureless room with actors who just seem completely clueless about what's going on, narrating large chunks of language. I guess you could call it, if you're being very generous, dialogue. And there's like no adornment to anything that's going on. And they're not really even talking about anything most of the time. Brian, how would you describe a typical scene in After Last Season? Okay, so a couple pieces to this. Yes, there is this plot that the two main characters are these uh, neurologists or whatever. And they've got this Inception type invention that lets them see each other's thoughts. And that's conveyed through bad CGI. Like, really, really bad. But... You're just selling by calling it really, really bad. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely deconstruct the CGI a little bit here in a bit. But, and when they're doing this, like, therapy session where they're mind-melding, they're describing what they're seeing, and that drones on in its own way. But the dialogue that I love is the bookends. Like, there's sizable scenes that have nothing to do with this interview... Sometimes there will be characters talking to each other and the dialogue actually had what I thought was like verisimilitude to it. Like it seemed like something you would say, like the most boring possible things that you might say in a day. <laughs> like talking about like a town that you've never been to, but you've been through or just like describing what an MRI machine does. Yes. 
Exactly. The scene where it's the two women talking about towns that they used to live in and like towns that are near that town that they pass through. And well, when you lived in this area, did you always live in the same house? No, I used to live across town in Pelham. Pelham, huh? Though so, well, that sounds nice. So then later in the movie, after all the main arc has happened that we may touch on a little more, there's like another two people and they go into a house and as they walk in, one woman says, this room used to be two rooms. There was a wall dividing it down the middle. We knocked the wall down. And it stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> Like, we were almost to the end of the movie at this point. It's like, wow. This dialogue is so profoundly empty. <laughs> Brian, what it made me think of a little bit is we talked about when we were watching one of the teen comedies recently, how like a well-written teen comedy makes it feel like it took the best dialogue out of real conversation. Like over years and years and years, like the funniest things that anyone said and compacted it all into an hour and a half. After last season is the exact opposite of that. It takes the hour and a half most inane things that you've ever said, that anyone has ever said, and puts them onto film. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Moving back to the uh, Entertainment Weekly article, one of the people who's like in those like local obscure weird movie groups who they interviewed for the article says that he was absolutely fascinated by the trailer because it ends on a line of a guy talking in the phone like oh, there are some printers in the basement that you can use <laughs> and it contains like zero information it does not seem important whatsoever but the funny thing is is that that in the trailer just ending on that line with no context that's kind of a perfect representation of the movie because the guy's just having a conversation about someone coming over to do some work in the building he's at. And he's like, there are some printers in the basement you can use. Do we need to know this, this information? No. Is this relevant information? No. Is it even remotely close to the end of the scene? No, it's just like, it's a thing that he says. And that's pretty much all the dialogue in this movie. It's just people talking about this and that that has absolutely nothing to do with anything that you need to know to understand the movie. And before the women went into the house, they were standing like on the street corner. And one says, my husband saw a coyote over there. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a thousand yard stare. And it's all in such deadpan, too. I think I think we're being too emotive, like replicating the dialogue here. Yeah, it's it's something else. And then you can't forget the way that the dialogue is shot. There are very frequently points when someone is saying a few lines, they stop, the camera holds for a moment, it cuts to the person they're talking to, just staring off into blank space, holds there for a few seconds, cuts back to the person who was talking, holds, and then they resume talking. Right, it's a reaction shot where the person doesn't react. <laughs> This might be the worst edited movie I've ever seen. You know, when you have dialogue, you expect a certain cadence. And every single exchange is padded. It's like one of the characters would say something, and then there will be like a second and a half pause with nothing happening, just holding still on that person. And then cutting to the next person and, and hearing what they have to say. But it, it just it didn't sound like humans talking. 
or oftentimes there's moments when there's absolutely no need for another. It's just like a standard shot on the actors. The shot is off, is off center because the shot is always off center in this movie. And like in the middle of the conversation, the camera just like shifts over six inches <laughs> to the left. It's true. And then it shifts half a foot up. The impression that I got was that whoever made this movie had like spent a day on a movie set, but hadn't talked to anyone there about what they were doing. Like they knew that you needed a camera and you needed lights and you needed sound but they didn't like ask about the artistry of any of it. Yeah. And so the result is that every shot is framed with like six feet too much headroom, a single source of light that's super bright and very artificial with nothing to fill in the big shadow on the back wall. And in the kind of locations where you'd swear a murder has just occurred... <laughs> Well, it's this one house with these big blank pastel walls. And some of the scenes is trying to convey that it's like a hospital or a medical clinic. And it's clearly somebody's house. Everything is fucking beige in this movie. I'm so tired of beige. Like three scenes into this movie. And it's just blank walls, but the kind of light that they use. So Brian, you're a filmmaker. You can help me out with this. The key light is the one that puts the light on the subjects but causes the shadow the fill light is the one that gives it some depth and kind of hides the shadow from the key light is that right yes that's how it's supposed to work but we don't really get any fill light at all here this is 100 percent key light it's just oversaturated bright lights on whatever the subject is and then the most garish it's almost like expressionistic film noir shadows like jagged across the backgrounds these beige backgrounds <laughs> except probably completely unintentional oh absolutely if it weren't for the fact that i didn't know that cameras don't run themselves i'd doubt that the camera being on was intentional <laughs> So let's talk about the CGI. So there's this section, I almost said like in the second act, but to call this movie an axe. It's it's in the middle, but it's it's like half the runtime. <laughs> so they're doing this brain swap. By the way, the the chip like that communicates between them. I'm pretty sure it's just a yellow post-it note that they put on their head or a pink post-it note or something. I'm pretty sure when he takes it out of the box, they don't exist. Like when they're doing the experiment, they have the little things on like their temples. But when he opens up the box and pulls them out, he's just like grabbing air. That's certainly possible too. And so the way that we see these dreams that are these thoughts that are it's visualized, the way that they're seeing them is like, just imagine you downloaded some free... 3D rendering software. I don't know what the free... I'm sure there's like a free version of one of them. You downloaded that and like you didn't even run the tutorial. You just hit open on like the demo file and you dragged the box around. Like that's what most of this is. It's so, so primitive, but it was made in 2009. But it's like 1981 level uh, CGI. Yeah, this was the year that Avatar came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like it, there's just, you know, balls floating around. 
they have no uh, collision detection. They just phase right through each other. Sometimes they get really, really fancy and they have like, you know, some birds made out of like five polygonal shapes or fish swimming through a bunch of colored nothing that's probably supposed to be coral or something. Gargus, I have to admit, I almost blocked you on Discord when the, the person emerged out of the wall and didn't have a face. I was like, this has gone too far. This is enough. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> There's this it's this one cursed image of these two horrible CGI people, one of whom does not have a face and not in like a creepy way, but in like a way. Hey, maybe I'll go and add a face later. It's a it's like a smooth gray surface. Yeah, it's kind of like those like in the pandemic times they had those. It it was like a sunglass, like a lens of a sunglass, but it covers your whole face. And I don't know. I got to get a picture of this. And good God, does this go on forever and ever. It goes on forever, and it goes on even longer, because they keep cutting back to just, like, B-roll footage of nothing. There are significant blocks of nothing. This movie has a habit of cutting over to just nothing. Like, you know, there's a conversation going on. We cut over to a wall with a piece of paper on it, and then back. Or we'll cut over to some chairs, and there'll be a little bit of flute playing. And that they pad out the big like half hour CGI fest, I guess, with stuff like that, including I think like one scene where it's what I swear is just nobody intentionally made this. They just locked the cameraman outside in the dead of winter at night, and he had no means of communicating with anybody, so he's just wandering outside the building, wondering if he's gonna freeze to death or not. That's how it reads to me. Oh yeah, there's that random snow segment which i don't even remember if they acknowledge that there's snow or why there's snow <laughs> the, the funny thing is is that when i watched this movie the first time this block of cgi stuff that we're talking about was the most fascinating part to me because it's where an actual semi-story kind of starts to emerge because, you know, they're just conducting this experiment with little chips that let each other see their thoughts. And all of a sudden, the woman starts, uh, you know, conjuring up images that she's not consciously thinking of herself. And then all of a sudden, it turns out, oh, no, I'm thinking of a murder. And then they call over to another place and, oh, no, that, that exact murder has occurred. <laughs> and there's been murders on the campus recently. Maybe if we, if we keep going with this, we can tap into it and precog the next murder. And then they start precogging the murderer coming for them. It's like, you know, it's almost in the same zip code as exciting. <laughs> almost. It may be like five zip codes over, but that's still almost. Yeah, it's getting into like lawnmower man territory or something. But it's like, are they seeing these things happening or are they causing them to happen with their mind melding? And I wasn't sure where we were supposed to come down on that. And then the ghost shows up. Oh, yeah, yeah. So things get real weird after the CGI because then the protagonist, by the way, the protagonist's name is Matthew. Uh, I guess there's two protagonists, Matthew and Sarah. So Matthew wakes up. Oh, wait, everything that we just witnessed was a dream. And now Sarah has finally come for whatever the original meeting was going to be. 
Oh, except before Matthew woke up, there was this telekinetic stuff that was going on. I forgot. So the, we get two bouts of telekinesis. I guess the first bit happens before he wakes up. Yeah, the first is in a dream. That's right. Okay, so I want to hear someone describe this telekinesis. It's truly groundbreaking cinematic special effects. I watched this to a friend the other night, and I said to her while we were watching... All these shots are out of focus because they couldn't think of any other way to hide the strings. <laughs> That's the best description I've got. Yeah. What about you, Brian? Yeah, about half of it. You can tell that they like, it's somebody carrying the camera around and like sticking out a leg to like kick things. <laughs> but the ones where it was lifted, presumably by a string, I actually, some of them I was kind of impressed by. Like when the ruler levitates around. I don't know. It was something. Whereas anything else in the movie had been nothing. It was like, oh, they're actually like kind of hovering that thing. And like uh, there was a time when like the chair, there was a chair sitting out on its own in the room and it like kicked over with nobody seemingly there to kick it. And probably they did that with some kind of string too, but I thought that shot looked good. Yeah. And of course, the stuff moving is only like maybe a third of the ghost sequence. The rest of it is just the actors like uncertainly standing, looking off to the side, like they're waiting for the director to tell them what to do. But he's just sort of sitting there giving them the thumbs up or else just like running over to another part of the room and being like, I don't see anything. After having been in a room with a ghost that's moving things invisibly for five minutes. And didn't they determine the ghost's name was Craig? I was like, what? Who the hell is Craig? Yes, but that's a, that's topside. Okay. Oh, you, you missed the you missed the reveal at the end. Which reveal? At the end, when those two women who were talking about knocking down the house wall, they they get to talking about someone who died recently. She pulls out a photo and is like, "That's Craig," and that's how the movie ends. Yeah. So Craig is the ghost, and then. But Craig is the ghost, like, in the real part. He's not the ghost in the dream, I don't think. The ghost in the dream is, like, nobody or maybe a manifestation of the killer. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. All I do know is that when I watched this the first time and was getting, like, as invested as it is possible to get in after last season when you are completely fascinated with its awfulness and probably a little bit sleep-deprived, the man wakes up and I realize... Hold on just a fucking minute. The entire last half hour of this movie, the part that I was actually enjoying to an extent, that was a dream. <laughs> and we're just going to carry on. And that is how After Last Season earned its title as the worst movie I've ever seen. I want to say one more thing about the reveal that happens at the end when they hold up the picture and say, that's Craig. It really seemed like it was going to fade out and end there. But then they set the frame back on the table and they walk out of frame and they say we have a room next to the living room and that is the last line of the film oh boy very poetic it's like you you actually had a good ending point for the film but no that's what we go out on that's pretty funny <laughs> 
but no they wake up they do the actual experiment and then like the killer who's been kind of in the margins in the movie shows up and then craig the ghost comes in and like throws a chair at the actor in a shot where i'm pretty sure we just killed this man <laughs> yeah like we didn't tell him what was going to happen we just told him to stand here and then we threw a steel chair at him and he dropped and he never gets back up i i kind of like the narrative device of you are seeing things in a dream and then you're not sure if what you're seeing in reality is that thing that's been happening in the dream or like whether you're just going crazy or something like that. Like I'm sure there's plenty of movies you can think of that have something like that where you're not sure if you're going crazy or you're, or you're like somehow some sort of prophet or something like that. Um, I feel like there's a lot of interesting ways to go with that. This is like the least interesting and coherent version of that like i think that's what mark region was going for is like oh it was all a dream but wait was it just a dream whoa because then the, you start getting the telekinetic stuff outside of it except it's all happening in like tight sequence with no change of tone or setting so it's like you're just repeating the beat that you just had there's like no dramatic impact of this I was convinced I was going mad when I started thinking to myself, is this dream sequence actually brilliant on this rewatch? Because like he's dreaming about this technology that doesn't exist in the real world that lets him see into people's thoughts. And he winds up precogging the murderer and having like seeing visions of the murderer coming for him. And then a ghost shows up. And then he wakes up and he starts doing the real experiment with the girl, which is just like, asking like go nowhere questions that are incredibly boring to listen to but then they get premonitions of the murderer coming and the ghost saves them so it's like he's having a dream about precogging the murderer and being assisted by a ghost that is prophesying him in real life precogging the murderer and being assisted by a ghost it's like a recursion that never ends that is a generous reading yeah Here's the thing. Um, this time when I was looking at information for the film, I found that Mark Regan actually did an interview with Filmmaker Magazine. And there's some choice things in here. Like they ask him about his interest with schizophrenia in the movie because that comes up a few times. And if I may paraphrase, he says that he has an interest with science and science fiction. And he says he did some research into schizophrenia, which he says is a bit like science. So you have science and science fiction which are a bit alike you have science and schizophrenia which are a bit alike so science fiction and schizophrenia are a bit alike and that's the plot of my movie which that doesn't make any sense but go on <laughs> throughout the interview region has like a weird preoccupation with saying that his movie is very logical like he wants to do a movie that's really realistic and logical and happens the way that things would in the real world. And I was reading this while watching the movie and it got into my head that is this man thinking that because if you were to be involved with a real life murder case and catch the murder at the very tail end of it, the story wouldn't really happen through all the, you know, inane bullshit that goes on in your life. It ha kind of happened incidental to it, around it. 
So if I'm going to make a movie about that sort of story that's logical and reasonable and realistic, I should make a movie that has almost nothing to do with the murder spree that's happening on campus, except in the most incidental ways, and have the science fiction element be as light and strange as possible with little explanation, because why would you have an explanation in real life? It's not logical. It just happened to you. And then he made the movie this way, thinking he was doing some kind of M. Night Shyamalan brilliance, because he specifically cites The Sixth Sense as an influence on this movie, which you say my read on it's generous. I think that attribution of influence is generous. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think that Mark Regent thinks he is making a very arty movie, except he has negative skill. I, I think the last way you put it is closest to my reading of this, which is that I think he probably had like a couple of ideas that were kernels of ideas and he just didn't have the faintest idea of how to actually execute them. And like in his head, the things connect, but like he never actually developed them or, or gave them anything. And his idea of, oh, I'm going to make it like it really is, is like, oh, I'm just going to have people talk about the dumb shit that they talk about in real life, even if it has nothing to do with what's going on. Isn't that so realistic and groundbreaking? But like, no, it's not. It's it's just nothing is what it is. It's just people standing on screen next to a beige wall saying nothing. I, I read a couple of interviews with him and I have a couple of thoughts, too. But go, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that you could make the concept work if you had like anything interesting to do with the dialogue that happens while these stories happening, while the real stories happening, like incidentally in the background, or if you could shoot remotely competently you could make something of this it's just it's just this man and i do not think anyone associated with him are not the people to make that happen is now the time we want to talk about the budget of this film sure yeah actually no before we dive into the budget because i i just want to make sure we get into the end of the movie because we there's one thing that i want to talk about and then I want to pivot back to the filmmaking of this because I have thoughts and anecdotes on that as well. So the the way this, this movie ends is Gargas kind of alluded to it here, but the murderer pops in and a ghost throws a chair at the murderer. This moment when the murderer came in was like genuinely David Lynchian. It was like for like 45 seconds this guy was an artist and that was literally that 45 seconds. There's like this bizarre shot where all of a sudden the beige in the background works and like the killer's body is like, he's holding up a knife, but it's almost like this weird, like fractal effect to the way that the body is framed. And I was like, wow, this is almost something that is completely unintentional. It's like, if you throw enough things at a wall, something is going to look like, Mary and Jesus or something like that. But like, this is his version of like throwing enough inane stuff at a wall. And all of a sudden you have something that's like compelling and like freaky, which is this murderer comes in in like an inhuman way with this knife up in the air. And I was briefly riveted by, by this here, this murder. Of course, then he opens his mouth, 
Oh, and then it's got the psycho ending where somebody's explaining what the murderer was thinking this whole time, except it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this for the murderer. He's probably the best actor in the movie by virtue of being just bad instead of lobotomized. <laughs> I think that's a good way of putting it. But let's let's talk now a little bit more about the filmmaking here. So the budget, Brian, tell us about the budget. Allegedly, this film had a budget of $5 million. The only explanation I've seen was most of it was spent on the CGI. That still doesn't explain anything. I have a little more thought on this, but go ahead, Gargus. No, you go first. I want to hear what you have to say, if it's the same as mine. So, okay. So Mark Regan describes himself in interviews as a real estate manager. So my thought is like, this is a dude who, first of all, imagines himself as big business and everything he's talked about with the investors, there's no companies given. He says it's friends and associates. I think that he probably spent five figures on it. And then the 5 million is like written off losses that didn't actually get spent. It's like tax avoidance, or I don't know if you'd call it money laundering or something like that. Like, there's no way that that money was actually spent on this film. I mean, maybe it shifted into his pocket or something like that, but that money was not spent making this film. And to back that up, I have another rabbit hole to go down, which is that I found the most active Facebook fan group of after last season. So it is called I Believe in After Last Season. And if you go to I Believe in After Last Season, people are still posting there. And there's a lot of discussion, mostly like remembering fondly when this movie was made and like weird connections they have to it. But one of the most active participants is the lead actor, the guy who plays Matthew. His name is Jason Kulas, K-U-L-A-S, something like that. He frequently comments on there. He occasionally posts. And when I say frequently, I mean, it's like a few times a year. It's not like once a week or something. And so I actually found his profile. I exchanged some Facebook messages with him where I asked him a few questions. He said, I, I can't write out responses right now, but I actually did write a, a little bit on Facebook about it when I posted it. And here's a link to that. And so I don't know if you remember, I know Brian does, back in the day, Facebook had this concept called Notes, which was like a blogging thing that they tried. And uh, he had a couple of like notes that he had written about his experience. And he said in one of these notes, he said that Mark Regan was extremely budget conscious. So he like had in his head exactly what were the lines of dialogue that he wanted. And he, he threw his camera on. He's like, all right, I'm filming the, the dialogue for seven of the movie's 30 scenes and just say these lines and I'll edit it together. And he did do it on, on a film on 35 meter, millimeter film. So it's not like he went the absolute cheapest possible route. He actually did get a real camera and real film, which says something. But even that is like, you know, $10,000, $20,000. That's not, you're not even approaching a million just to like successfully filmed something they filmed everything in two days at two locations so like it's not like you're spending the budget there and so where could this money possibly have gone it's like he was trying to trim budget and yet it, 
this is supposed to be a $5 million movie. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, see, for the longest time, the whole, like, this is like a money laundering operation was my read on the movie. But looking at the interview with Filmmaker Magazine, there is a passage where they're talking about the special effects and computer animation. And Reason says, some people took care of those, mostly because of the investors. I basically chose some things and told them how things should look. And when they ask him, like, if there were people from VFS, VFX house or people who just know how to do things on a computer. Oh, people who knew how to do things on a computer, unknown people. We put the effects together from scratch. And then right after that, they get into talking about the uh, $5 million budget. And he says that it is correct, but that the budget for filming the movie itself was, as you say, about five figures, thirty dollars to $40,000. And that everything else went towards um, distribution and getting the special effects done. Now, the distribution, I don't know if that could account for too much because, you know, this movie played in four theaters. So it is possible that it all went to the special effects. And because this was all with investors' money, and because he seems to have no idea who actually did it himself, my current read on the situation is that he kind of got himself fleeced out of about $5 million. Like, oh, yeah, 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 we, we can get you like half an hour of special effects. It's going to cost you like $5 million. And then they bring back this. Maybe that's I do think that he, you know, even in the quote unquote money laundering read, like the tax avoidance read, I I still think he thought that he was making something real. I think he was earnest about making something. I don't think he was just lighting money on fire for the sake of it. Oh, no, it's just like, yeah, I, I really do think he believed in this project. I just also think that he because he openly admits in multiple areas, like he had no idea what he was doing with post-production or distributing. They were like bungling their way through it and trying to get, figure out what the exact right route is and crashing into obstacles every which way. It does seem likely to me that he just like handed a bunch of money over to some people who said they'd give him some really good effects and then they gave him the most rudimentary shit they could get away with. Yeah, I don't know. I would say hold this up against The Room, which allegedly has a budget of $6 million. And in that case, Tommy Wiseau hired a professional crew in Los Angeles. So, like, it's reasonably well shot, reasonably well scored. Like, the settings are nice. But then the directing and the writing are terrible and perhaps as a result the acting is super weird but also the story like doesn't have any genre elements it's a it's a straight love triangle drama so you don't need to have a cardboard mri or any ghosts it's just to say that clearly multiple people involved in this one after last season didn't know what they were doing also what does the title mean why is it after last season? <laughs> That's a good point. I have no idea. Uh, well, after last season is this season. So, <laughs> so, so you, now. You just call it now. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Today. <laughs> but that feels right. It's the experience of watching this movie is just being trapped in a room with the most boring shit imaginable and not being able to get out. 
it is very much a movie of the moment. We do have uh, another movie to talk about. So I, I just want to throw in one or two more anecdotes I learned from my deep dive. So one is that this this guy that I found, the actor, one, he's posted about being interested in like getting it going as like a cult hit circuit. Like kind of how, what's the guy's name for the room? T- Tommy, what is it? Wizzo. Wizzo. Yeah. So he's kind of leaned into it to some extent, you know. I mean, I know he's still enigmatic, but he's rebranded the film as a dark comedy, right? I haven't actually seen The Room, but that's my understanding. On the other hand, this guy, Mark Regan, he disappeared off the face of the earth. Mark Regan was always an alias. It's not his real name. So if you search for him in the Boston area where this was filmed, you won't find him. Some people know his real name, but they're being very tight-lipped about it, probably to protect his privacy, which is probably fine. But he's resisted any attempts to, like, relicense this, reprint new DVDs, which could probably make him thousands and thousands of dollars because there's it's it's enough of a small internet cult at this point that people would buy it. And even this actor, Jason Kulas, is like, hey, let's do a 10-year anniversary screening. He said that back in 2019. But, like, he was like, well, we couldn't actually screen it anywhere because we could never get the rights to it. And if you go on YouTube, the places where it's posted – they get taken down real fast. Like there's a lot of places that say, here's a link to watch it on YouTube. And there's like multiple postings and it always gets taken down. So someone is monitoring this and striking it whenever it gets posted. I think he's really embarrassed about it. And is like, uh, this kind of flopped. It turns out that people didn't react to my vision the way that I did. And I'm some combination of embarrassed and mad about it. And I'm just moving on from my, with it, you know, it's like it hurts for him to think about because why else would you not get this free money that could just be put on your lap? That would track with the thing that I wanted to bring up as one last little thing because the Wikipedia page for this art for this movie has a little line in it that I should note has a citation needed mark on it, but it says that even original theatrical printings of this movie are rare to come across because it was determined that it was cheaper to just burn the things than send them back. That sounds apocryphal, but it could be. Which sounds sounds to me like code for, please don't bring these back to me. Please don't hold on to them. Just get rid of them. Just throw them in the trash. Burn them. Make sure there is no, make sure there is no evidence that you ever had this. So the, the, the last thing I have is the most recent post on that Facebook group dates from last year and who the guy who posted this he said i was rummaging through a desk today and i stumbled across my copy of als by the way that's how they abbreviated on the fan group it's als instead of after last season which just makes me think of the degenerative disease that's that's a good point it it just makes me think of awog for amazing world of ghosts oh (laughs) yeah Um, But anyways, I stumbled across my copy of ALS and thought I would post this here just as a reference. Years ago, I tried to contact quote unquote Mark Regan about buying the rights to ALS. Certified letters sent him Amazon boxes with letters in them pleading for a phone call. I even sent him a burner phone with my number on it, asking him to call me. Never got a response. I think I might have got him on the phone once by tracking down his number. He mumbled something, hung up and blocked me. Then I thought I had a break. This was maybe four to six years ago. He went through bankruptcy. Thought if I went through lawyers and the court with an offer, he would have to take it. At the very least, he'd have to put it up for sale. 
I remember getting a very short answer from whom I believe was handling the bankruptcy, saying, there is nothing to buy. Several letters, phone calls later, no response. He either paid back what was owed or the case was just closed. Or there was nothing to buy. Who knows? Just adds to the mystery of the movie and the man. Had not thought about this for years and t today brought back the memories of way too much time invested trying to track him down and buy the rights for this film. That's I thought that was a, a epic quest of someone to try and get their hands on the, the masters and the rights for after last season. Well, God willing, someday it'll show up in the ruins of a burned church that's been struck by lightning. Because I think that's the only way it's getting out into the world. We are going to throw a rating on. You'll have uh, the opportunity to give some, some parting thoughts. But before we pivot, does anybody have any, any last things they want to add? No, I'm ready. There are some printers in the basement that you can use. <laughs> so the second movie we watched is Final Flesh from 2009. So this is another strange movie and in many ways bad movie, but it's very, very different. So... This movie was made by Vernon Chapman, who is a guy who's written and produced a bunch of subversive comedy shows and movies. So I think he's associated with Adult Swim. Do either of you have much experience with him outside of this? Oh, plenty myself. I know that he is a member of the art collective Prefer, spelled P-F-F-R. He is the creator of shows such as Wonder Chosen for MTV, The Heart She Hollowed, The Shivering Truth, and what's the last one? Did it say he did Xavier Renegade Angel? Yes, he did Xavier's Renegade Angel. I thought there was a third one that he produced for Adult Swim after Xavier. Yeah, Xavier is the point where I'm mostly familiar with him. I don't know if I should make an attempt at explaining Xavier, if that's something you think your audience needs. No, we can, we can, if you're interested in this guy, he's got a, a lot of stuff out there. So let's talk about what Final Flesh actually is. So this guy, Vernon Chapman. So I had read the production background, and it's one of those things like Nanook of the North, where every time you even hear about the movie, you hear about the production and like how it got made. And as is the same case with Nanook of the North, there is an opening title card that explains exactly how it was made. So that's why everybody knows exactly how it was made, because the movie tells you on the opening frame. So it's this text crawl that basically explains that one hypothetically can hire pornographic studios to make films of your own desires, and they will make whatever you tell them to make. It's like a premium custom boutique service of your own pornography. And so what did Vernon Chapman do? Well, he hired them all to make this ultra bizarre, nonsensical script. And he hired four different studios to do it and tied it together. And that's what this movie is. It's four segments where he hired these studios by sending them a script and like treating it as something that he was earnestly interested in and like aroused by, I suppose. And these studios made it. And it's, there's the, those four segments stitched together. And I just wanted to say that while this business model might sound strange, it makes a lot of sense. 
because in this day and age where any porn that is made is just going to be instantly circulated without payment making its way to the creator, this is the one way that you ensure you get paid is doing everything by commission. Yeah, you say you say modern day, but I think that Chapman had started the work on Final Flesh sometime in the early 2000s. So the earliest stages of this movie, whenever those were shot, I have no idea which of those there are. Those are like 20 years old by now. Right. Well, basically, as long as the Internet's been around, you know, you don't need to order your videotapes from catalogs anymore. And so the way to ensure that these performers make money one way is to kind of find, you know, patrons like the old days of art. It's like find some wealthy individual who's going to commission you. Man, you could like connecting this to like Renaissance artists, Brian. Exactly. <laughs> hey, if that wealthy, if that wealthy individual wants you to say, "Hey, God, I'll let you see me naked if you show me what you look like," and then strip bare, then if the money's green. <laughs> So each of these four segments was made by four different studios has a somewhat similar structure in that there's three actors, a dad, a mom, and a daughter. And they are all like reacting to visions of some sort, a danger of some sort in a very non-clear way. It's, it's incomprehensible. It's entirely non sequiturs. There are some recurring bits Yeah, the first segment establishes that the atomic bomb is about to drop. And after a whole bunch of surreal digressions, the first segment ends with, I think, what is supposed to be the atom bomb dropping. And then in the second segment, they wake up and realize they're dead and try to figure out a way to escape from God and get back to life. The third segment, they're all back to life. And in the fourth, I have absolutely no idea what distinguishes it from the third in terms of narrative. There's no clear cut, except maybe God punishing them for rebelling, but that's just me grabbing something straight out of the air. It is not textually supported at all. Yeah, and and each one of these has just insane, nonsensical things happening, and people are doing them, and that's the weird thing. It's like a juxtaposition of actors who aren't in on the joke or at least don't appear to be in on the joke most of the time. And like normally what these people would be doing and like the tone and the production quality would be like outright filth. But instead, it's just like a sort of tasteless weirdness with like this undercurrent of fake profundity to it. Yeah, for the ones who seem the least in on the joke... The level of acting is about what you get where it's just the perfunctory bit where they're just sitting around talking for a little bit, setting the scene, and then everybody takes off their clothes and starts fucking each other, and that's the next 15 minutes of the video, and that's all you do. You have maybe like a minute, two minutes of dialogue at most, and then it's just writhing and moaning and penetration. But instead they have to do the entire thing where they're just being asked to sit around going like, I'm going to go to the bathroom now. And then she goes into the bathroom and picks up the Quran and reads from it and has like some weird music playing over her. And then she finishes reading it, walks out and is like, I really stank that place up. You don't want to go in there for a while. And then another digression happens. It's like they're being asked to do that sort of stuff 
and they are realizing it with the same level of disinterested, can we just get to the fucking already boredom that they would reserve for any of their other projects. I have a list of a few strange things that happened that that I noticed. But Brian, what was going through your head as we were watching this? So I was laughing this whole movie. Big belly laughs. There's some amazing dialogue in this film. Like, okay, one of the times, they, they keep being various reasons to get cutaways. There's like dreams and just, I'm going to go into the other room, off in the bathroom. But one of the times... <laughs> My my favorite group was the family at the start. I enjoyed it a little less as it went on because the novelty kind of wore off. But it, in this first family, one of the women is like, I'm going to go to the bathroom and powder my nose and take a big shit. It's like, you know, you say, I mean, you say powder your nose to be like a euphemism, but then it just torpedoes that. <laughs> I read a couple of interviews with Vernon Chapman on the release of this. So it actually started when he didn't, he didn't know if this would work basically. And so he hired the first studio to do it. He actually hired them in the order that you see them in the movie. And he got the first one in the mail and he just couldn't believe that it had actually happened, but Oh wait, no, actually before that they said we filmed it, but because we had to like shoot a whole bunch of stuff in like different shots and it took a long time to film. The actors are each demanding another hundred dollars, so we're only going to send it to you if you spend us send us three hundred more dollars. So he said the initial quote was nine hundred dollars, and the actual amount he paid for the first segment was twelve hundred dollars. So compare that to the budget for after last season, by the way. <laughs> I I would I would say it's worth it. They had to pull out a lot of props if this really all originated with them. They had to have like a live mouse and like a conch shell, things that are not going to just be lying around. <laughs> yeah, it, you you really don't find like the uh, tears of neglected children in angel blood in, in just any store. That's true. Yeah. So, anyways, that first group, I think Brian, I'm with you that that one most captured the spirit of the avant-garde trick that i think chapman was trying to pull with this mm -hmm. they they were the most out there what this project made me think of i don't know if either of you remember back in the early pre-youtube internet days when you would get your memes from you're the man now dog.com but back in that distant past there was a meme that caught on for a little while called shoe on head Gargas, have you heard of this? I have heard of the political YouTuber Shoe on Head. I've not heard of this. Okay. Well, Shoe on Head was a trend where people would patronize cam girls. So live adult entertainers who put on personal performances on a one-on-one -on -one basis and it gets recorded. You know, the precursor to OnlyFans, basically. Right, right. And... Somebody had the idea that the prompt they were going to send to the cam girl was put shoe on head. And she's like, what? He's like, put shoe on head. And then she did it. And then the trend was just everybody who frequents cam girls, they're going to tell them all to put their shoes on their heads. Because 
I guess it's just to show that they'll do what you tell them to do in exchange for money, which is the same thing that's happening here. <laughs> well, if you really want that for free, you could just get the subservient chicken to do it for you. So Gargus keeps throwing in references to some of the bits that happen throughout here. So why don't we talk about some of the bits? I, I made a short list of ones that, that, uh, that stuck out to me. So one early one, when you kind of know what, what sort of ride, a hint to the sort of ride that you're getting yourself into is a woman births a steak, like a raw steak. You're talking about props, Brian. This was like probably a, a $25 steak that this woman birthed out. And then she breastfeeds it. Yeah. This was my favorite moment in the whole film because she starts breastfeeding a steak and she says, mm, yeah, get that milk in you. <laughs> and <laughs> and I was like, cr I was like crying laughing already at this point. And then get that blank in you becomes a recurring phrase, at least in this first <laughs> act. Anytime someone eats something, another character comments, mm, get that chili in you. And I, I want to use this now. The next time I'm next to somebody eating. The character for the record is eating chili because she has to throw up and they need a receptacle for it. And all they have is chili and the father won't let her waste the chili can. So she has to eat all the chili and then throw up into the chili can. And that being explained, I was laughing hard. It doesn't come across well on the air, but seeing it. Just her, like, waiting to throw up, but before she can do it, she has to eat. And while she's eating, they're saying, mm, yeah, get that chili in you. <laughs> uh, it really was, was working for me on the comedic level. I don't know. I was enjoying it quite a bit. Gargus, give us one or two bits you liked from this. Oh, it is so difficult to say. Um, how about, um, I always wanted to murder the president. Why'd you want to murder the president, Mommy? <laughs> I wanted to use his blood to grease the machine of capitalism. That was pretty good. Or just a line that stood out to me. It looks like Gregor Samso will get the last laugh after all. I've seen that one referenced a lot. I, I feel like that kind of caught on as like a gag from this, but... I just wrote down a list of just a few quotes that I got a kick out of and most of them come from this first family they were the ones who were really holding my attention <laughs> but the guy says i was born numb i've been bluffing all my sensations <laughs> and then uh, actually one that came from a later family is <laughs> the guy says i'm gonna come so fast the babies will make are already in the obituaries <laughs> <laughs> Good line. Or uh, the one of the parents to their, the, I guess the father to the child. You've been trouble ever since the moment you drizzled out of my dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could we could devolve an entire into an entire thing of just saying good bits. My favorite was they had skulls. I think it was supposed to be like a tattoo or something, but it was clearly just sharpied on their back, and. I don't remember the context, not that there's ever any context for any of this, but they, the skulls need to start kissing. And so they say, shut up and mash backs. And so they're rubbing their backs against each other with the skull things on it. Shut up and mash backs. Yeah, I love that. 
I don't think there was any context there. I don't think there was any context to why they had the mashbacks. But afterwards, the daughter's like, don't you remember the first time I walked in on you and dad mashing backs? And then it flashes back to that, and it's like 10 minutes before she walks in and goes, ew, mom and dad, gross. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I can mash back someday. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked the part where they were trying to escape and make God throw them up so they could come back to life by just passing each other scripts and reading lines off of them. And it's like, maybe we can get out by practicing the dramatic arts here have some scripts they pass out the scripts maybe we can get it out by practicing the dramatic arts here have some scripts pass out scripts oh no they handed me more scripts this is stupid and then he eats his script that was when i thought they might be in on the joke just the fact that they had all those multiple copies of everything like they really leaned into getting the props to achieve this surrealism Yeah, that was the second family. They were the ones who had, like, the thing where God is talking to them, and he does it by sliding notes under the door. That's right. I thought that was funny. God spoke to them with these cheap handwritten notes just sliding under the door. And I think my line in the movie is when the daughter picks one up and goes, it's from God. He's hungry. But yeah, there's definitely varying levels of them being in on the joke. I think the first family was probably the ones who were like least in on it. They gave me the biggest vibes of, well, this is weird, but we're getting paid. So I guess we're going to do it. Yeah. Well, the second family had like a bit more of a sense of like actual comedic timing to them and trying to lean in on the joke and add a little bit of something of their own. And the fourth one, I I swear that they're just student filmmakers who also happened to dabble in the adult entertainments too, because there was like legitimate lighting and stuff in that one. Oh yeah, they, they, they were most certainly like, ah yes, this project deserves the good arty lighting. The third family, I am convinced, put in a lot of pornographic content that Chapman probably did not intend. I did notice that was the most explicit one. Yeah, this is the most raunchy. Like, there's a scene where, like, they're going through the dialogue and the guy playing the dad is just kind of, like, trying to stroke himself into being hard. There's another scene where the daughter is, like, he's got a pencil and she's, like, fingering herself and there's multiple close-ups on her vagina as she's doing it. I, I Based on the other three scripts and scenarios i don't think those things were from chapman i think they were just trying to give a client what they thought they wanted it could be because the rest of the movie it's like again it's not actually pornography that in this movie it's just made by the studios that did that and so it's like very odd it's like they don't know what to actually be doing so it's, it's just a weird juxtaposition the pencil going in made me squeamish didn't like that. <laughs> she does, though, say, I'm going to erase the baby or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I read that the first studio is from Minnesota, which is just so funny. It's like Minnesota is like the least sexy place in America, probably. <laughs> what makes South Dakota more sexy than Minnesota to you? I don't know. Neither of them are, are sexy at all. Okay. But 
I don't know. That was just like whenever I think about Minnesota, I get bored just like thinking about Minnesota. But but then uh, the middle two were Florida. And then the last one was San Fernando Valley, like from what's that movie, Brian, that we watched? Uh, Boogie Nights. OK. All right. Good call. So I don't really know what else there is to say about it, except to just recount weird things that happen, because that's kind of the entire point. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I was about to say something about like the the third ones, I don't think were very good as actors compared to the others, but they do have the rare moment, like when they're in the kitchen and one of them opens the cabinet and then slams it. So I was like, ah, angels. It's an infestation. Yeah, there's some recurring angel talk. Also, sparrows come up like three times. I don't know what the deal is with sparrows. I couldn't tell, yeah. I think it was just Chapman amusing himself when he wrote these scripts. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, one gag I liked, I actually thought was legitimately kind of clever, is there's a lot of things where unexpected objects come out of the underpants of someone. And one of them is uh, a woman grabs literally another woman's cherry it's like a like a fruit cherry and she's like i'm taking your innocence and i was like oh that's actually kind of clever and like in theme with what the undercurrent of this uh project (laughs) yeah i just so the first woman lays an egg like a regular sized chicken egg and is like really proud and then they start having like an egg off and they just keep laying larger and larger objects and, like, are embarrassed when their egg is no longer the largest egg. And I don't know, this whole <laughs> sequence, I was I was laughing. Because then the steak comes out and they're doing all the steak stuff. Some of the dream talk is great. Like, sort of reminds me of a dream I had later tonight. Or, this all reminds me of that one time I never had even one dream my entire life followed by the longest, most drawn-out close-up humanly possible. This first family, one other thing that cracked me up was <laughs> the father gets knocked unconscious, and they decide they're going to play a prank on him, and <laughs> they're going to make him believe that his entire life has been a dream, and he's actually still a baby. <laughs> yeah, except they say, like, we're going to make him believe the last five years of his life were just a dream. But I guess, I guess that's far enough back. Yeah, but anyway, he's in this baby garb, and they say, Do you ever have fantasies of returning to the womb? He, and he says, Returning to the womb? That sounds great! And then he's like trying to slither back in. It's, I don't know, I admired his gusto. Yeah, I was like, wow, they're, they're leaning into it. They're, they're not holding back on this one. Yeah, it's like we, we got some problems with the size logistics, but he's he's going for it. He's got the spirit. I had kind of wished that it was going to end with something a little bit more apocalyptic, but it was like it just kind of ends. It's like for I agree with Brian that it does lose its novelty as you go. At first, you're like, what the hell am I watching? And then it's like, oh, I, I get it now and I've seen it four times and that's enough. And then it doesn't really build to anything. It just kind of stops. Well, given the way it was made, it'd be very difficult for it to build anything. I suppose, yeah. I was wondering if he was going to add something else in post or something, like another nuclear explosion or something. 
well, the apocalypse already happened at the end of the first part. And, you know, once you spit sulfuric acid in God's face and climb out through his scars back to reality, it's like, where else can you go? I noticed in your notes that you had a little segment talking about, like, is this something that Chapman made to, like, earnestly explore what happens when you take ideas this strange and ask basically pornographic actors in production studios with no context for what they're doing to make them happen? Or is this a form of uh, exploiting these people and making fun of them? Yeah, I mean, I have some thoughts on that. I was going to kind of save it, my conclusion rating. And I do think this movie opens up some questions to like, I don't know, are you making fun of people who are in this, like their profession is like kind of inherently kind of degrading and you're taking advantage of that? Um, It does feel kind of ooky. At the same time, though, my thought is it's not pure sadism because they are being paid and agreeing to do these things. And in that regard, are they really any different than any other actor? It's like, I wrote these words and I'm making people say them and act a certain way according to my whims. But, you know, it's a financial transaction. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, they even seem to have a little more sway over how the movie goes than certain other actors. I mean, you know, most actors on a, you know, triple... AAA major Hollywood production, they can't decide, well, you know, I think this scene really needs some masturbation, so let me drop my pants and do that. Maybe. I think there's some nuance there. Like, I just feel like sex work is a little different than other work, and I don't know. I'm, I, don't, I don't have my feelings fully sorted out on it. Yeah, I guess there is also the question of, like, what Chapman's own intent is, because you could read this as, like, oh, I'm gonna, like, you know make these people do whatever I want. It's like monkey work or it'd be, oh, I'm going to give these people something better than what they normally do. Or, you know, I don't have any major intention with this. I just want to see what happens. There's multiple ways you could look at it. And, you know, without seeing like the exact scripts that he sent, it's kind of difficult to tell, I think. Sure. Because we've been get, we've been guessing at like you know oh when when is the actual pornographic stuff coming from Chapman and when is it just something that was imposed by the people making it? I I don't know. Right. Because they do they're like actually in some ways they're more creatively liberated. There is something to that I think. Yeah. Plus, just the question of like what was he trying to do with this? Because there's a lot of evocations of God and like fighting with God. They read passages from the Quran. They say that at one time you accidentally screamed out the entire Bible during sex word for word. There's commonality with the themes that he explored in Xavier. And I'm pretty sure there is something intentional in Xavier through all the extreme surrealism. So I'm curious what you two think. It's like you had to pin down what is Final Flesh trying to do by this experiment other than simply see if it will work. To be honest, I don't really think, I think he's just sticking around. Like, I don't think there is anything to say in this. I think it's like just absurdity for the sake of absurdity. I I don't see any profundity in it, but that's just me. Yeah, I landed in a pretty similar spot, but I did enjoy some of the dialogue that he got out of it. 
if I had to wrangle myself into a position right now, having put some thought into this throughout the day, but not really actively tried to mash it down into a coherent thought, I would make the assertion, possibly entirely baselessly, but when it comes to the work of Vernon Chapman, perhaps baseless assertions are the perfect sort of assertions. I would say that it has something to do with the inherent absurdity of trying to make any kind of profound, resonant point vis-a-vis philosophy or spiritualism or the nature of art on a world that is pretty much entirely doomed to die. We're all going to be wiped out one day, whether by natural causes or the atomic bomb. Trying to do anything with all that, you know, grasp at the nature of life, you know, grapple with our relationship with God, trying to figure out why we're here, what it all means. It's basically all the same as just like sitting down and making pornography and jerking off to people who are giving birth to steaks and like chewing off hot dog dicks in order to bring a man back to life and marrying a couple so that they can have a um, necromancy baby without it being out of wedlock. It really doesn't come down to anything different when you're trying to ask, why are we here? It's basically just all you know. It's a rule 34 philosophy. Oh man, I I didn't write down any specific lines, but that scene when she's like marrying the corpses so that when they make love, it won't be sinful. And she's like puppeting corpses around. I I laughed at that too. That was pretty out there. And ends up giving birth to raw chickens that have apples inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what really what what is, what is Descartes except like a Renaissance Bambi Blaze? So why don't we go ahead and wrap this up i think we've we've said some interesting thing we, we've talked through these these pieces i think we're at the point where where we can rate does anybody want to throw in any last thoughts or observations before uh we get to our, our signature section is it good last thing i want to say is the uh connection between the movies the uh, kevin baconing of it oh sure because among the uh, various projects that Vernon Chapman has worked on, um, side note, not really related, but he also voices Towley on South Park. But he also wrote a few concepts for the original Jackass the movie. Now, Jackass, both the franchise and its movies, they are produced and co-written in part by Spike Jones. If you remember, Spike Jones was posited to have had something to do with after last season now you know he didn't that was a lie but because he has that very tangential connection to after last season that gave after last season a public profile and kind of led to us talking about it today you can say that at after last season and final flesh can be directly related to each other by the route of spike jones to vernon chapman very interesting that's kind of wild 
So, Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from Very Not Good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward a Good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess the order that will go is Brian, then Gargus, then me, I suppose. Um, and we will do After Last Season and then Final Flesh. So does that work for everyone? Sounds good. Sure. Are we going to be doing those both together or are we going to loop through one and the other? We'll loop through one and then the other. So Brian is After Last Season good. No, Dan, it's not I'm going to give it a one out of eight, a very not good on our scale. It's the lowest you can go. It's a struggle to watch. When I first Googled it and was trying to find it, it didn't pop up on any services. The only thing I saw was a review, like a capsule review, a letterbox blurb. And it said, I've watched Manos, but this is the worst movie I've ever seen. And, you know, just a, a, a list of a couple others, too, that get brought into the conversation, but that this was the worst. And so that's what I knew going in. And I feel like it might be earned. It's it's just a, a it's a struggle to get through. It drags on. It drags on and pretty much every facet of it is inept. But I'm glad that I watched it. I'm glad it was brought to my attention because I hadn't even heard of this one. And ultimately, it's going to flow well, this selection and Final Flesh, into what I have queued up for next week. So I think it was the perfect pick to watch right now. Very not good. Gargus, what about you? Is After Last Season good? I would like to answer that question by looking through a few of the films that I have rated a lone half star on Leatherboxd for some context. There's God's Not Dead, that movie that's based on that one copypasta about the marine student who humiliates his professor by proving that God exists. There's Saving Christmas, Kurt Cameron's utterly boring in Vanity Project, where he argues that all of the gross capitalistic commercial parts of Christmas are actually what Christmas is really all about. There's Birdemic Shock and Terror. There's Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2. There's Alone in the Dark 2. There's the Asylum War of the Worlds movie. There's Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny. An American Carol. What the bleep do we know? 2025, The World Enslaved by a Virus. These are some exceptionally, exceptionally bad movies, many of which actively offend me or try to do measurable harm to the world by encouraging people to, you know, not take their medicine or, I don't know, try to overthrow their government because of coronavirus restrictions. After Last Season is still the worst movie out of all of these. <laughs> so you're, I, I take it that that is a one out of eight, a very not good. <laughs> I don't even know if one out of eight is low enough, but if that is the bottom of the scale, then yes. So I'm just butting in one more time to say that up to this point, unquestionably, my least favorite movie was Little Monsters starring Howie Mandel. This might come close. I don't know if it quite takes the spot, but it's in that same rarefied territory. Something special. Like I said, everything wrong. Not a single correct decision anywhere. So that 
comes to me, I will answer is after last season good. So I've talked a little bit about my relationship with avant-garde media so bad it's good. Uh, in our George of the Jungle episode, I gave George of the Jungle 2 a 5 out of 8, despite being like utterly incompetent Alan Smithy nonsense, because that I found like a genuine blast and thrill ride of just like incompetence raised to artistry. So as I was digging deeper into the after last season saga, everything about Mark Regan, by the way, I didn't even like hit on all of the weird things I read about Mark Regan. He claims that there was a crew of 10 on the film. And then when he got pressed about that, he said, Oh, 10, including like the carpenters and stuff. Really, it was just me and my friend. I did the sound and my friend did the camera work, which raises more questions than it answers. But anyways, to me, this is an interesting movie as an artifact, but just utter unwatchable nothingness. It's a very not good. It's the bottom barrel of a very not good. Um, I, I, I suppose I'm glad I watched it and learned about it, but like I, I can't see myself watching it again. And like I just the actual experience of watching it gave me less than nothing. It gave me zero. You could stare at a wall and get more out of it. So I'm going to say very not good on, on after last season. And I guess that brings us to final flesh. So Brian is final flesh from 2009. Good. I had a lot of fun with this one. I was enjoying myself. I almost wish I'd watched this one second, but I actually watched this one first. That said, like my enjoyment waned a bit as we got on into like the third and the fourth act because it, it felt repetitive. It's four 10 minute segments where, you know, they wake up and they talk to each other and then something happens that they go back to sleep or oblivion or whatever it is supposed to be. Uh, I give this one a three ultimately, which I think we've termed not, not good. Like, I think there is some promise to the premise. I don't think it could go much beyond what we get here in terms of quality. Uh, I definitely had some laughs. These are some things that I'm going to be quoting. I'm going to be thinking, get that in you <laughs> for my next half dozen meals at least. And that's ultimately where I land. Uh, it's, it is not safe for work for anyone curious to check it out. You do get some nudity and some simulated sexual acts of a sort what about you gargus is final flesh good <sighs> that's the question of the hour isn't it i find final flesh the same way i find so much of the vernon chapman's work it is fascinating it is compelling it is Strange in ways I'm not sure I want to imagine how they were imagined. It's definitely one of a kind. I can't think of any other movies that were produced by a bunch of pornography and amateur pornography studios at that just acting out the whims of what I'm sure they believed was a madman. But as to the question of whether or not it's good... I mean, it's it's sort of like what I was trying to piece together with regards to what the movie's about. It's like, does good or not good really matter when the world could be blown up by an atom bomb and the act of 
rating a movie is really just the same as like sticking fingers up your ass and getting off that. So in terms of whether or not Final Flesh is good or not good on the uh, one to eight scale of the goods, I'm going to rate it. I've had it up to here with consciousness. <laughs> I don't know how we numerify that, but that is not unreasonable. It's to the left of numbers. You got to figure that one out. All right. Well, because Brian and I have a numeric scale that we use for our ongoing averages and such intensive statistical computations, I I feel compelled to give this one a number. And um, so to kind of build on my previous thoughts on like, what is my relationship with avant-garde? So there, ha- there has been like uh, experimental film I've really, really liked that we've talked about. I had a really strong reaction, positive reaction to as I was moving ahead. Occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty, which is not so bad it's good, but it is it is like boundary pushing in form. And this is boundary pushing in form in a similar way. But this one, if after last season made me feel nothing at all, feel an absence of any feeling, then this one actually made me feel a little bit sad. Just like, I don't know. I felt kind of gross watching what really felt exploitative to me and just like it didn't really work for me. Like uh, I didn't feel like he was doing anything particularly clever. Now, does that mean that I didn't laugh? No, I laughed. I laughed quite hard a few times. Brian, yours is uh, get that in you. For me, it's shut up and mash backs. That'll be the one that I'm thinking about. And yet I still can't say that I, I found it overall a positive experience. There were moments where it felt like it was maybe creeping towards some thought about the relationship with art and how we create it and the role of that in our life and the meaningless of it all. And it never really got there for me. It was just a dude pulling a prank and I'm going to give it a two. That is a not good an amusing two to be sure, but still a, a not good for me. Yeah. I think I should clarify that when I analyze Vernon Chapman's work, I don't know if I do it the same way I'd analyze literally anything else. I try to get myself into a state where I am not going to second guess myself. I'm just going to plow right on ahead and whatever one thought says, the next thought's going to build on and damn the consequences. So if I pulled out something that sounds meaningful, I don't know if that's anything meaningful from the film or just something entirely out of my own soul. I think that's fair. I mean, you know, with this type of thing, it's you're going to get out of it what you put into it, and everyone's going to react differently to it. So I, I don't think that's unreasonable. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't, I don't hold any sort of negative reaction to either of these against anyone. This is... We, we are, like, on the, the fringe. You take two more steps, and you're over the edge into the void. Well, Gargas, I would say thank you for bringing these to our attention the way that I did for the last two movies, but I'm not sure that I can in earnest say that, but I will say it was an experience, that's for sure. I'll say thank Um, you. I'm surprised (laughs) these have completely evaded me up to this point, and I'm glad that we can spread the knowledge a bit. Yeah, (laughs) it's certainly something. Thank me for having promised to bring a a live grenade in and pull the pin and following through on it. (laughs) Yeah. So when you said that, 
in the Discord and wherever else you made that claim, I was thinking you were going to bring Sallow and a Serbian film. And these were not that, so... Thank you for that, at least, yeah. <laughs> bringing in Sallow is, isn't like bringing in a hand grenade. Bringing in Sallow is just like bringing in radioactive material and just making everyone sit there. <laughs> It's like, it'd be like if I dragged you two to the elephant's foot at Chernobyl. It's not spectacular, it's just painful and sad. Yeah, so thank you for challenging us at least, Gargus. So Brian, what are we going to be watching next week on The Goods, a film podcast? I think it's a special one. That's right. The next one up is going to be my annual birthday show. And it's actually going to follow well from this episode because what I have queued up is a like labelless DVD that I found on the rack at a thrift store and it's called feeders. It's a very low budget independent film made by the Polonia brothers. It's pretty short. I happened to watch it on my birthday one year. And in conjunction with that, we are going to consider a short web show called Henry's kitchen, which is something I tend to think about at this time of year and we'll dig into that some more it also has that low budget one person wearing all the hats vibe just very fringe as you said gargus film production cool well you know i love a good birthday episode i don't know anything about either of these things and i am looking forward to figuring out what they are and and talking through it with you brian and celebrating with you. Oh, thank you, Dan. And on the other side of that, listeners will return to fare a little more cinematically substantial. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you guys have me back on next, I promise I'll try and take us back into something that's a little more conventional. Well, you got to follow your heart, Cargus, and at a minimum, you did that. And if nothing else, it was an experience. So thank you for joining us. Listeners, thank you for being with us. I swore to God I'd kill us all, and I did it. <laughs> and have a good evening, everyone. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Thanks for having me. Tune in next time. Mm-hmm.